This is Ask Dr. E, where Dr. Michael Easley answers your biblical or theological questions in 10 minutes or less. Today's question comes from Sarah. Sarah writes, Reformed theology seems to be creeping into many churches and denominations. I've always associated old earth, non-literal six days of creation, limited atonement, amillennialism, infant baptism, and replacement theology to be tenets of Reformed doctrine. But since these positions are not widely accepted by some of the so-called Reformed churches, I'm not clear now on what is meant when someone says they are Reformed. So, Dr. E., what is Reformed theology? <laughs> Ten minutes or the less ain't going to happen. Let's, let's yeah, try to scratch the service. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a resurgence of Reformed theology, but I do think churches evangelical fundamental Bible have moved and shifted and purpose-driven and seeker-sensitive and engaging more social issues, and they've moved away from exposition, and certainly they've not taught history. So Sarah is spot on when she says there is a trend or a shift to this thing. Essentially, we're illiterate with our history, and I don't mean to be Mm -hmm. unkind. We just are. We don't know American history, much less biblical history and history of Protestant theology. So if we're to go back to the Reformed churches in America, there are over 70 denominations, and I quit counting. Those Reformed (laughs) churches would have all kinds of iterations like Baptist churches do. So it's very hard to say this is Reformed theology. Typically, you're going to have a covenant emphasis, and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that in just a second. But I think the emotional side of this question, people are drawn to a teacher or an author or a social media person that they admire and respect, and they follow him or her. And oh, by the way, they're reformed. That's really what's going on. But because she asked the question, and it's a great question, let's jump into it a little bit. We talk about the so-called five points of Calvinism, and we have to go back and understand where this started in Reformed theology. These were all Catholic priests. Yep. This is often missed. Until the 16th century, there was one church. Now, there were divisions geographically, just like there are today. So they would have different iterations and nuances, but there was a universal church, the Holy Catholic Church. And if we want to start with ostensibly Martin Luther, John Calvin, and see what they were doing, Luther began really at the Eucharist. He did not believe that it's called transubstantiation, that the body and blood literally was the body and blood of Jesus. It changed in form, not in substance. And so the reformers come along, Luther comes along and says, no, it's consubstantiation, that the spirit of Jesus is with the elements. This began one of the many controversial subjects that took off. And you think about the efficacy of the cross, why would it have to be the literal body and blood of Jesus? And Luther's on to something. We're not re-crucifying Jesus every single Sunday. And the Catholics held to the priest's hands could consecrate the host and turn the wine into blood and so forth. So this is one of Luther's kind of striking the match. It'll go into other areas as well. Lutherans and Calvinists will typically talk about the conveyance of grace. So the Eucharist isn't really literally body and blood, but grace is being conveyed. And it was kind of like Luther was giving him a runway to make it less hard to embrace. (laughs) So even my friends said, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even my friends today will say, oh, I know, but I I get God's grace every time. And I go, no, you have God's grace positionally. It's not based on, otherwise we'd have Lord's Supper 20 times a day. 
you right. know, so it's kind of, it's, it's contrived, but you understand why. Now, when the reform scholars start fighting about these things, and there's a domino effect, it's Luther, it's Calvin, it's Zwingli, it's Bullinger, it's Melanchthon, all these guys are in different geographic areas, and no surprise, the Germans and Latin Rome will be the two loudest voices, we might say, in these debates. Mm -hmm. And Germany will ostensibly become the loudest voice. A more egregious thing was the indulgences. The Catholic Church had the doctrine that if you gave money, your mother is in purgatory, purgation, she's burning off the sins that she didn't confess in this lifetime, and they would guilt the congregants to put money in the plate so the soul in purgatory would, would stop its ascent. Yeah. And Luther reacted against that as well. And, of course, this was a cash cow for the Catholic Church. So right. those are just two issues. This is how the Reformation begins. Okay. Now, it'll be not long after this, Luther comes to Christ. So if, if you want to study the whole how do we get there, you might say the first church of priests, not all were Christian, and Luther becomes sort of this match that struck and you might argue John Calvin poured gas on the fire that Luther started. The other thing to keep in mind are the confessions or catechisms. It started with what was called the Scots Confession, the Belgic Confession. The Heidelberg Catechism is probably one of the more well-known, as well as the Westminster Confession. And we'll have a link in the show notes at Westminster Seminary that has a very nice link to the confession, and you can go through and look at the Westminster Confession. And that was a question-and-answer format. So the idea was to teach, and it was designed to teach children. So you'd ask a question, and they would memorize the answer. And that was you know, how these things progressed. And by, I want to say, 1513, somewhere in there, German and Latin are the primary languages. This is a Q&A format. There's 129 questions and answers in this yeah. whole thing. The first question, interestingly, what is your only comfort in life and death? Hmm. And that's a good question. And the answer is not short. The answer is a paragraph. So you have to yeah. go look up the link if you want to <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. find it. 65 versions. Just to insert really fast, Tim yeah. Keller, out of his church, I mean, I'm sure he was a part of it. I'm sure he wasn't the only person. They created a whole new, like based off of the Westminster Confession, they did a smaller set of catechisms to teach. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's really interesting. I, I've been looking at it. They've got songs that go with it. Anyway, just just an interesting kind of modern day additive to this movement. That's what they were doing, yeah. yeah. And even these confessions were designed to teach kids yeah. in the 1600s. Fast forward, we have the 39 Articles of the Church of England. That is now what we call the Common Book of Prayer. So we've got what's going on in Rome, what's going on in German countries, German-speaking, German language primarily, and now it's coming to English language, you might argue. And then we have the most important event, I would argue, is the Synod of Dort, D-O-R-T. And this is where another Ask Dr. E question we're going to talk about in a few minutes, Arminianism, and what is Arminianism and why this mm -hmm. is a big issue. Now, let me say this. This is 1647. This is 100 years after Calvin. Hmm. Why is this important? Because the so-called tulip has nothing to do with John Calvin. Right. John Calvin's dead. The people that wrote the acrostic, T-U-L-I-P, do not write it based on Calvin's teaching. They write it because of the Synod of Dort, which is a guy named Jacobus Arminius, a.k.a. Arminian Arminian Arminianism. Yeah. 
and those are Wesleyan and Catholic and the Assemblies of God, most Pentecostal churches, some of your free will Baptist churches adhere to this, where you can lose your salvation. The so-called five-point Calvinism was actually a complete line-by-line response to Jakob Arminius at the Synod of Dort. Nothing to do with John Calvin. Right. But Calvinists who held that Protestant theology, we might say, responded. So therefore we say, oh, it's Calvinism. It really isn't. It'd be like if today Bible churches got together and they wrote the Danvers Statement on the position of men and women. Okay, that doesn't mean we're all aligning to the original evangelical fundamental Baptist church. It meant, no, we're making a statement as evangelicals and fundamentals. This is what the scripture says about this. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely what the Calvinists who wrote the so-called TULIP. And we'll talk about that more in the other Ask Dr. E question. To sum up the question that Sarah's asking, I think the appeal is, number one, liturgy. The evangelical church is loosely organized. It's not clear in its teaching most of the time. Some are, Mm -hmm. to be fair. Mm -hmm. They kind of go with the flow. They're very concerned with their identity, with their presence, with their, if you will, their, their position in the marketplace, so to speak. They follow after other evangelicals they admire and respect. And so you have a church today, I'm very concerned about the so-called Bible, fundamental evangelical fellowship branded church. They are not really teaching scripture and they're certainly not teaching the history of how they got where they are. They've moved away from the term evangelical. They don't want to be part of that. Yeah. Which is very telling. They're about to talk about CRT and BLM yeah, and LGBTQA and social mm-hmm. justice rather than teach a biblical theological history and exposition of the scripture, how we got there. So it's a big question, Sarah. My answer is longer than your, your question, but some of the things you point out tend to be aligned with it. The most egregious one for me personally is replacement theology. And you point that out in your question, because if if the church replaces Israel, then I've got to cut out a lot of the Bible. I've got to cut out Deuteronomy 30, Romans 9, 10, 11. I've got to cut out all the references that are prophetic, typically, to the state of Israel. I have a dear, dear friend. He's a very strong Calvinist. I've spoken in his church in, in years past. He is down-the-line reform guy. And he, I said, when you teach the second part of Daniel— all the revelation in the book of Ezekiel, let me know. <laughs> and he burst out laughing because he'll never touch him. Yeah. He'll never touch yeah. him. And so that's the difference of a biblical hermeneutic, yeah. how we normal grammatical biblical hermeneutic versus a covenant theology. Yeah. And my covenant theologian friends will abdicate and say, nope, Israel isn't important anymore. It's just a piece of dirt, basically. The church has replaced Israel. And I have a big problem that God chose those people as part of his program. Yeah. Okay. Well, Does that help? <laughs> you did it in, in 12 minutes. So do we need do we need this to be a part two? Or are you did you say all that you needed to say? Oh yeah, because we gotta we gotta talk about tulip sometime. Yeah. Well, I think we have some episodes on tulip. So maybe we'll link those in this episode's show notes, but you know, we'll probably do it again. But okay, we're already over. But I would say to quickly recap, to answer when this is what I gathered from what you just said to help Sarah and everyone else. When someone says, I'm in the Reformed camp, number one, that means a lot of things to a lot of people. And most of us, if we're saying that, it's probably because we align with a celebrity pastor who calls himself Reformed. So we're we're just aligning with one man or woman's teaching that we really like. 
And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean what reformed means. Two, I would say probably two of the biggest pieces, which you just mentioned, reformed theology, is the covenant lens. So they're looking at a covenant of work starting in with Adam, then they're looking at Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Davidic, all these covenants throughout. And that the big thing that you just said, replacement theology, is that the covenant that God made with Israel, once Christ comes and brings in the new covenant, the church, where there's no Jew or Gentile, replaces Israel. And so dispensationalists and others have a huge issue with this because if God is not going to be faithful to his promise to Israel, what do we do with that? Yeah, you abrogate that one promise to Israel, you have a big hermeneutical yeah. problem. And that's why covenant theology is different than what we would call biblical theology, systematic theology. And most of the arch reform folks will kind of acknowledge covenant theology, you have to be careful with it. And by the way, they're not looking at all the covenants to build theology. It's a bit of a throwaway term. Hmm. Dispensationalists, of course, get a very bad rap for all kinds of reasons, but the idea is a biblical hermeneutic. Right. So when we often talk about the Abrahamic covenant being the beginning of understanding the whole salvation plan, that he chose Abram out of Ur of Chaldees to be a blessing to the world, but that would come through Israel. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ would come through Israel, the Davidic covenant. There will always be a king on David's throne, Messianic, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 following. And then the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, that all folds into Christ coming. So you can't turn to the New Testament and say, oh, the Jews don't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Israel doesn't matter anymore. And if you ignore prophecy, if you ignore the land in the future, sure, shrug your shoulders. I think that land is going to play a central part. Christ will literally return. He will split the mountain. He'll physically be on the earth for a thousand-year mm -hmm. reign. And my covenant and reform friends would say, nope, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to lean on a biblical hermeneutic, not simply what other reformed theologians have said over the decades. So what a reformed, uh, and again, I mean, it's, it's so hard because it's like, well, Maybe the majority of the camp would say this, but there's always going to be people that, you know, they're going to have different interpretations yes. about the creation account. They're going to have different interpretations about the end times. Textbook reformer, end times, there's not a literal reign. Is it happening now? Is there all even... Mill. They're all mill. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so explain that. What does that mean to be all yeah, mill? They'll talk about... The two sentences. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, well, there, there's no millennium. Yeah. Ah, meaning a ne yeah. negations. There's no literal reign. So there's no rapture. R.C. Sproul was big on this. So, no what rapture. does it mean that Christ uh, returns uh, to a reformed guy or gal? Oh, they believe he'll return, uh -huh. but they don't. They don't unfold it. And and granted, some of the dispensational schemes are very contrived. Yeah. I'll acknowledge yeah. that. I would argue for a biblical hermeneutic. Dispensationalism is a way to do theology, yeah. just like systematic theology is a way to do theology. Think about John Owen's 16 volumes, 16 volumes to explain one book. Yeah. Therein lies the problem. We're trying to systematize God, yeah. sin, the devil, end times, eschatology, pneumatology, and so it gets complex. So I'd rather you have a biblical hermeneutic, read the Bible as it unfolds, sew it together, as I mentioned those covenants, for example, and look at the big picture. Yeah. What I would argue is that biblical hermeneutic is more important than a denominational label. And I'm reformed when it comes to soteriology, how a person gets saved. I'm reformed yeah. when it comes to predestination and election. Mm -hmm. Now, they'll have a different spin on 
election than I will. They'll talk about double predestination and so forth. Their view of election is a little different than what I think the Scripture teaches, but I won't disfellowship with them. Now, they will with me (laughs) (laughs) all day long. I'm I'm a heretic when it comes to my arch reform friends. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, we really did. This probably could have been two episodes. We're just going to leave it as one. You know, people can... Turn it off at 10 minutes if they don't want to Hope listen to Hope we confuse you thoroughly, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> listen, Sarah, we have another episode coming up in a couple weeks that will we will return to this conversation a little bit. So anyway, if you've got a question for Dr. E, call us, text us, email us. The info is in your show notes. Ask Dr. E is produced by me, Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Jason Germain. 